Good morning, VRBC again. Uh, you who are here in person, you who are joining us online, uh, welcome to week three of this series, This Is My Story. Uh, we're looking at the radical difference Jesus makes in our lives, the, the change that happens in our story when we encounter Christ and his grace and his spirit and his power in our life. And so what we've been doing in this series is we've been focused on the gospel of John, and it's almost like we're asking people from John's gospel to sit on that leather sofa and to, to share their story of the difference that Jesus has made in their lives, even as we are learning how to vocalize our stories about the difference Jesus has made in us. And today we're gonna to be in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John, and we're gonna see what Jesus has to say about shame. Now the word shame is not used in our passage, but it really kind of hovers over our passage like a, a mushroom cloud. The, the good news is Jesus has an answer to the problem of our shame. And so our passage is really quite a long one, but I'm gonna read to you kind of the first part of it to get us going, and we'll start in John chapter four, verse seven. So hear the word of the Lord. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself and as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Let me read verse 14 to you. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. May God bless the reading of this word. So my family, growing up, used to sit on the right side of the sanctuary of Parkdale Baptist Church in Corpus Christi. We sat in the same pew every Sunday. There was a pillar and there was a kind of a cutout on part of the pew because of the pillar and it gave my tall dad extra leg room. And uh, so we would sit there and I can remember one Sunday when I was a kid, I remember this very vividly, the minister of music announced the hymn number. Uh, everybody turned in their hymnals to the right hymn number and uh, my mom found the right uh, page in her hymnal, and she rose to her feet, and she motioned for my older sister and younger brother and me to stand to our feet, which, of course, we dutifully did. Now, back then in the olden days, there were standing songs, and there were sitting songs. And you never knew which was a standing song and which was a sitting song. The, the minister of music just made the call. Uh, kind of on the spot, and, uh, and this happened to be a sitting song. Uh, and it probably took a full five seconds for me to realize that my mom and siblings, and we were standing, and everybody else was sitting. And when I made this realization, I didn't kind of point to any of my family members. I just, in my shame, just plopped down onto my pew and, and kind of covered my, my face in my hands. Now, it was a small thing. It was a silly thing. I'm going to guess something like that has happened to most, if not all of us. 
But I can still remember as a kid embarrassment rising up from some place within me. And it spread into my neck and it turned my ears red and it, I could feel it kind of at the, 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 I could feel it in my hair follicles. I was so embarrassed and, and that shame lingered for the rest of the service. And to this day, when a worship leader says, stand and sing, I kind of dart around and look because I still remember feeling foolish and standing alone. Now, I'm not sure what it says about me that when I chose to share a personal story of shame, I, I, I found a story that was 50 years old and relatively trivial. I wish that was the most shameful thing that's ever happened in my life. But it brings up an inescapable truth, doesn't it? When it comes to shame, we all know that sensation. And likely from less than trivial circumstances, we all know the sick feeling in the pit of our stomachs. We all know the burning embarrassment. We all know what it feels like to try to melt into the pew. We all know what it feels like to, to, to desire to isolate ourselves from others. And the tough thing about shame is it can impact us whether we, it's deserved or whether it's undeserved. In other words, we can feel shame by association, not something that we did necessarily, but something that someone close to us did and we're identified with them. And so we kind of feel a vicarious shame. Well, the woman we meet today is very well acquainted with the concept of shame. But as we're going to see for this woman, there is good news on the way. Jesus is coming to her life. In fact, one of the first themes that I want you to see in this passage is that Jesus refuses to run from our shame. Early on in John 4, we just see that Jesus is determined to meet this woman. In fact, I want you to notice a very specific wording in, in verse 4. It says, now he, Jesus, had to go through Samaria. The, the apostle John could have written, now Jesus went to Samaria. I mean, Jesus went from point A to point B. But instead, the wording is he had to go. In the Greek, there's this word dei, D-E-I, which has a sense of divine necessity, divine compulsion. It's like Jesus, just in, in, in submission to his father, had to go into that region that other Jews went around. Other Jews would take the loop around Samaria, Jesus took the business route through the heart of Samaria. He walks into this region that to a Jew was shameful. Why? Well, the citizens had this sort of mixed heritage, part Jewish and part Assyrian. Uh, the, the people had tiny Bibles. Uh, their Bibles were five books long, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Uh, and, and yet Jesus walks into Samaria with great determination. He walks into this town that's famous for having a, a well that was dug by Jacob, the famous figure from Genesis, given to his equally famous son, Joseph. And in the, in the hottest part of the day, Jesus plops down by the well. And it just so happens this one lone woman comes to the well at the worst part of the day, at the hottest part of the day, she comes alone and Jesus begins a surprising conversation with her. Look at verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me 
a drink. That's the first thing he says. That's the first point of contact is he asks a question. He asks a favor. I love what uh, Dale Bruner says. He says, Jesus didn't begin by saying, uh, excuse me, madam, do you realize you're a sinner? (laughs) Isn't that interesting? He says, Jesus is a gentleman. He asks a question that is humble. He asks a question that is kind. By the way, in the series, we are talking about how we share our faith. And I hope we'll take this lesson from Jesus. Uh, It's okay to be humble. (laughs) It's okay to be kind as we share our trust in Jesus. Jesus had to go and see this woman on this particular day. He had to go through Samaria. I wonder, when you woke up this morning, did you think that Jesus was showing the same determination to get to you today? That Jesus was saying, I I have to get to 1501 East Beltline because I have to meet with you, with each one of you, with me. What if Jesus absolutely has to sit down with us today, not to shame us, but to engage us in a life-giving conversation? Jesus has to go. He has to meet with us. But of course, we've got a ways to go because shame is not something that that, that comes easily to the surface. Uh, Even when Jesus is sitting in front of us, maybe especially when Jesus is sitting in front of us. And that's why I want us to see something else in this passage. That not only does Jesus... Uh, uh, refuse to run from our shame, but Jesus secondly addresses the sources of our shame. He speaks directly to the things in our lives that cause us such great shame. You see, as soon as he asks this woman for a drink of water, the woman shows by her response that something is off. (laughs) For Jesus to even ask her this question, it just feels like something is almost shameful. Something's not right. And and uh, there are just so many awkward barriers that separate her and this man. And she names them. She says, look, you're a Jew. And I'm a Samaritan. We, we don't hang out together. Not only that, you're a man and, and I'm a woman. And of course, she doesn't even realize that while she's a sinner, he's the son of God. She doesn't even know that yet. But all these barriers, all this shame, all this awkwardness does not stop Jesus from offering her his own kind of water what you might call the Greek word zoe, living water. The kind of water that causes your soul not to thirst. And of course, this woman misunderstands. She thinks Jesus is talking about some kind of souped up beverage, some kind of holy kombucha or something like that. And and so uh, she doesn't realize he's talking about soul refreshment. And you know, it's like, hey, I'd, I'd like to hear more about this water. And then Jesus says something very beautiful in verse 14. He says, whoever drinks the water, this Zoe water, this living water, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In the message, Eugene Peterson paraphrases this. He calls it an artesian spring within, gushing fountains of endless life. Whoever drinks my water, Jesus says, will have this artesian spring, endless, eternal life flowing out of them. Whether this woman realizes it or not, Jesus is speaking directly 
to the sources of shame. Her shame had made her heart so dry. And Jesus is speaking about the promise of the waters, the refreshment of the Holy Spirit. It's almost like her heart is Death Valley and Jesus is offering her Niagara Falls. But the woman is still, with all this exciting possibility, the woman is still kind of playing dodgeball with Jesus. She's not sure she wants to tell him why her soul is so thirsty. I mean, life kind of teaches us that, right? What's the main lesson, lesson that life teaches us about our hidden shame? Whether it's something shameful that our parents did or our, our sibling did or, or it's something shameful on our college transcript or it's something shameful on our legal record. What's, what's the lesson that life teaches us? The lesson is this. If you have shame, by all means, hide it. If you have shame, put it in a closet and put a lock on it. Whatever you do, don't let anybody know about your shame. But Jesus chooses lovingly to get to the heart of things. He does something that, that feels incredibly awkward. When we read it, it feels so awkward. He asks a woman to call her husband and come back. And the woman says very succinctly, uh, well, I, I have no husband. Technically, that's true. Ultimately, it's deceptive. <laughs> you can almost hear her hem and haw and stutter. What's she doing? She's doing her best to hide her shame. And Jesus is just not having it. <laughs> Jesus says to her, well, yeah, I guess technically that's true. You've had five husbands. And the current guy you're not married to, he's, he's living. So, okay, yeah, technically accurate. But you're really hiding something, aren't you? It's so painful to hear, isn't it? And you have to ask, why would Jesus, who started so humbly, gently, why, why would Jesus bring this up in her life, this greatest wound, the relational chaos of her life? I like what one commentator, Earl Palmer, says. He says, up until that moment, the woman would likely have felt so special for all the ways Rabbi Jesus had reached out to her. But if she had walked home without having this conversation about her chaotic relational life with men, she would have walked home doubting if he really loved her. She would have walked home saying, if he really knew me, if he knew all about me, would he still offer me living water? Life teaches us to make this bargain with shame. We say better hidden, <coughs> hidden shame than public shame. Better hidden shame than public shame. But Jesus says, better deep cleansing than hidden shame. Think about that. Jesus says, I want to get it out in the open so that I can deal with it, so that I can forgive it, so that I can cleanse it. Somebody has said, and this is, since I heard it, it's so profound for me. They said that in some way, dealing with hidden shame is like trying to hold a beach ball underwater. It takes a lot of effort. 
And we never know when we might get off balance and all of a sudden that shame is just shooting up above the surface of our lives. And some of us have just been working so hard. It wears us out trying to keep our shame below the surface of the water. We've worked so hard to conceal our shame. Neil Planiga said that shame is such a powerful emotion. It can motor us through the rest of our lives, even as we seek to escape it, to suppress it, to compensate for it. He says, how many shame-driven people have made up their minds to bury their inadequacies under 60-hour work weeks and perfectionistic obsessions? How many people have sought to dissolve their shame into alcohol, to to medicate their shame through substances and behaviors. I mean, I wonder, can you right now, can you think about this pressure of trying to hold your shame underwater and what that constant pressure is doing to you? How often do we come to church and it's like we're wearing our our poker faces. Nobody sees what we're holding. How often do we turn our face cards down, right? And then Jesus says, call your husband. And we say, well, you know, thank you, I don't have a husband. And he says, yeah, you're right. I guess uh, husband number one, and then there was husband number two, And then uh, husband number three, and wasn't there uh, husband number four? And then, yeah, I guess there was husband number five. And this current Jack Joker, he, he's, he's, you're not married to him. You know, if an unscrupulous person turns our cards face up, it's disaster. If, If an unscrupulous person does that, um, it's, it, it can be blackmail. It can be humiliation, right? How often we fear that the cards are going to be turned face up. But what if Jesus is turning the cards over for this woman for a different reason? What if Jesus turns the card over to say, forgiven <laughs> and forgiven? and forgiven, and forgiven, and forgiven, and forgiven. What if Jesus wants to expose the shame so that he might forgive the shame? By the way, never trust a pastor that carries playing cards in his pocket. I just, that, just write that down. That's important for us today. But what if Jesus says, why don't we address that shame? Why don't we get that shame out in the open? so that we can wash it away, so that you can experience forgiveness, so that you can come out of hiding, (laughs) so that you can be who you are called to be. What if we refresh that inner loneliness and isolation? That to me, friends, is the beautiful promise of this passage, and that is that Jesus offers the ultimate hope for shame. He does something that must have been so painful at at first and yet must have been so hopeful for the rest of that woman's life. He confronted her with a source of her shame, but notice, he never withdrew the offer of living water. 
I mean, think about it. This woman's life is a living desert. Socially, she's all alone. Relationally, her life with men has been at the very least tragic. Spiritually, her heart is a Sahara desert. And yet here she is. She's interested in the things of God. She even calls Jesus a a prophet. But her soul is still so thirsty for what only Jesus can give. And I guess like a lot of people who are, you know, thirsty for God, but yet they're struggling with their shame, you know, sometimes we prefer to kind of get over, like, not talk about our shame, but let's just talk about some religious side issue. Let's talk about God, but let's talk about God in a safe way. And so uh, uh, she has this little kind of question that gauges Jesus in debate. Say, uh, Jesus, your people say that the holiest spot to worship is Mount Moriah uh, in the city of Jerusalem. My people say it's Mount Gerizim in, in, uh, uh, in Samaria. Where is it? Is it Jerusalem? Is it Samaria? Let's talk about a safe religious argument. But Jesus keeps coming back to the main thing, doesn't he? He keeps the conversation from wandering away from living water. And by the way, this living water is the Holy Spirit. Jesus will say that three chapters later in John 7. He'll stand up and say, whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, Jesus meant the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive at Pentecost. You almost wonder if Jesus is highlighting the place of her thirst you almost wonder if, if he's, he's doing this so that she will know that she's truly loved. I mean, here she is. Maybe she's trying to find true love in one failed relationship after another. And Jesus says, no, I offer you true love. I offer you living water. I'm not trying to expose your shame. I'm trying to heal you of your shame. There's a better option than trying to hide our shame. It's letting Jesus forgive all of it. There's a better option, church. The better option is worshiping the Father through Jesus the truth and through the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. There's a better option than getting drawn off sides on these little religious debates. Is it Mount Gerizim? Is it Mount Moriah? Is it Is it, you know, this church? Is it that church? Is it Sunday school? Is it small groups? Is it Baptist? Is it Methodist? Is it traditional? Is it contemporary? Is it megachurch? Is it microchurches? You know, it's about Jesus, period. It is about Jesus. He is the source of living water. And you know what? I, I love this woman who's been, been trying to figure everything out, and she's talking to this rabbi, and, and uh, she knows he's smart, and, and, uh, and she knows he has the mind of the prophet, but still she says what we always say. Well, you know, one day, one day when the Messiah comes, one day when we're with the Messiah, one day all our questions will be answered. And then Jesus declared, verse 26, I, the one speaking to you, I am I, the one speaking to you, I am he. (laughs) I'm the same one who told Moses, my name is I am. I am the son of God. I am here. That's me. I know all there is to know about you, and I love you anyway. And then I love what happens in verse 28. The woman actually leaves her water jar at the well. 
I mean, the whole reason she came to the well was to, was to get water, right? <clears throat> and yet she left her water jar because she'd found a deeper stream. And she runs back to the village, and get this, she runs back to that village where no doubt she's been the social outcast, and she says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did, could this be the Christ? She doesn't say, come see a miracle worker, although he is. She doesn't say, come see an eloquent teacher, although he is. She doesn't say, come see a great leader, although he is. She says, come see a man who knows everything there is to know about me, but still loves me. Most of the time, we would try our best to avoid someone who knows everything there is to know about us. All our secrets all our regrets, all our shame, our browser history, everything that we try to hide from everybody. Come see a man who knows everything. Could he be the Messiah? We would do everything we could to avoid that person, unless it's Jesus, who forgives us of the shame, who washes us clean, who changes our identity, this woman would say, I'm, I'm no longer the fallen woman of this community, right? I'm the freed woman. And I'm a herald, I'm an evangelist, I'm a preacher. I'm sharing about the one who is the savior of the world. And in verse 39, many townspeople in Samaria, they made their way toward Jesus. Jesus said, hey, let's hang out for a while. Jesus spent two days with them. And many became believers. Ultimately, the woman's testimony was a summons, but they believed Jesus because they experienced living water too. And here's what I think is so cool. Remember how Jesus said when we experience living water, it's not just quenching our thirst. He says we'll become living water for others. This woman becomes living water for her community. And here we are with this passage. And we know our own pain and we know our own shame. And for some of us, our shame is old and our shame is deep. And all these years, we've been laboring, 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 laboring to keep it hidden. But what if Jesus can be trusted? What if he knows the worst about us, but loves us deeply? What if sharing that news could put us on the road to healing? Could you pray for that kind of courage? What if, if instead of hiding from others, we, we ran toward others with good news? What if we could turn our cards face up because we know with Jesus we always have a winning hand? I can't think of this passage without thinking of that wonderful story from the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, in, in the book, The Silver Chair, there's a young girl named Jill. She's entered uh, Narnia with her friend Eustace. And due to poor judgment, Jill is alone. She's separated from her friend. Like the woman in John 4, she's searching for water and then good news, temporarily. She finds a stream. But unfortunately, something stops her in her tracks. Just on the other side of the stream was a lion. His name was Aslan. He's the Christ figure of the Narnia books. And Jill stood there frozen in front of him. On the one hand, she was so thirsty. But on the other hand, she was so fearful of the lion. She kept hearing a voice in her head saying, if you're thirsty, come and drink. If you're thirsty, come and drink. If you're thirsty, come and drink. But yet she still stood there. 
I want you to listen to the dialogue that takes place. Are you not thirsty, said the lion? I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then, Jill said. There is no other stream, said the lion. Friends, that's the Samaritan woman's story. There is no other stream. As the deer pants for streams of water, the psalmist says, so our souls pant for Jesus, for living water. If this woman were sitting on the leather sofa, she would say, he washed away my shame and he made me an evangelist for my whole village. He turned the desert of my heart into a fountain. The woman would say, this is my story. In church, this is our story. So let's come to the stream. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, how you speak to our hearts with this passage. We've all sinned. We've all gone astray. We've all struggled with inherited shame, shame by association, and plenty of our own sin and shame. And yet you come to us with living water. You come to us with refreshment. You teach us that all of us can be uh, open to you, that, that even the worst of us can be forgiven by you. You turn our shame face up to forgive us, to free us, to empower us, to make us fountains, artesian fountains of living water and eternal life. Lord, in this moment, would you cleanse us? Would you remind us of your great and faithful love and mercy for us? Would you give us strength to trust you as we pray? In Jesus' name, amen.